Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. We are going through Revelation, and we did the rapture last week in verses 1 and 2, and we are going into the throne room of the universe now. So we're going to go through the whole chapter, chapter 4, if you remember the the outline, the divine outline of the letter we had in chapter one, the unveiling of who is Jesus, you know, who is he really for us? He's the king, he's the conqueror, he is everything for us. And chapters two and three, we took one week per letter of the seven letters of the seven churches where Jesus, a title of Jesus from chapter one is used in each of those letters to describe him literally making up the body of Christ, the church. And now at the end of chapter three, when you turn the page to chapter four, we've got verse one and two, the rapture. And we did a deep dive study on the rapture last week. So that's on our YouTube channel. If you guys missed last week, check it out so you can get caught up, literally, uh, pun fully intended here. So in, in verses one and two, the, the chapter opens, after this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet. And we did a lot of deep dive study on that trumpet from 1 Thessalonians 4, the voice of a trumpet that we get caught up, harpazo, raptured, and then it's, it's the same trumpet when we get our resurrected bodies. And the voice of the trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter, or after these things, after the church age closes. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one set on the throne. So we're in the throne room of the universe in chapters four and five. It's all about the throne room. And there's one that sits on the throne. And let's not forget that one, God alone sits on the throne. And it's the it's, it's interesting that this language is here and one it's set on the throne because Satan's tactics all the way from the Garden of Eden was to set his throne next to God. Remember, he never wanted to supplant God. He always wanted just to be like God. And that's the same temptation he tries to give us today. And it's just repackaged in different ways. But he wants you to be able to be like God. But there's only one. There's only one God. So after this in the Greek is metatauta. We talked about that a little bit last week, and it means after these things, after the church, from chapters 2 and 3. And at the end of the church age, that door will be opened in heaven, and we finally get to go home. So we're going to unpack the whole chapter, chapter 4 today, on what does that throne room event look like. It's going to be one of the greatest events of all history. And it's also perhaps the most misunderstood promise in the Bible, that we will be caught up and taken to that place. And at that moment, we're going to be there with one who sits on that throne, one and one only. So in, there we go. And so what we're going to study here, from here on out, 
what I want you guys to realize is John was taken. Okay, he was taken to all of the events we look at from chapter 4 on. John was there. He was physically there. And in the conversations, they say the angels and the other heavenly hosts that he's going to meet, they say, I will show thee. And 70 times in Revelation, John says, I looked. You know, this was not just a vision he received. He was physically taken to this period of time in history to see the rapture occur, the throne room event, Jesus take the scroll in chapter 5 that we'll look at next week, and then the seven-year tribulation, us coming back with Jesus in Revelation 19. 35 times in the book he says, I saw, seven times I beheld, and 23 times I heard. So he's there. He's physically there. You know, you could say he time-traveled, but, but he's, he's there. He's experiencing the events. And the very next verse, Revelation 4, 3, And after he that set was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. So this throne room, notice that he that sits on the throne is like a jasper and a sardine stone. We're going to look at that in a second. And the rainbow in sight was like unto an emerald. Okay, the word throne appears 39 times in the book of Revelation. And it's 12 times alone in chapter 4 and 5 times in chapter 5. So you've got 17 times in these two chapters the word throne or thronos in the Greek appears. So we are in the throne room experience of the entire universe. In the book of Revelation, there's a lot of thrones described, and almost half of them are right here in these two chapters. So we know that Jesus will sit on a throne. He's on his Father's throne right now from Psalms 110 and Revelation 3. He's on the throne of his mercy in Hebrews 4. And the throne of David that's promised to him in the future is what he will sit on in the millennium from Isaiah 9 and Luke 1. Remember we looked at that. The angel Gabriel promises Mary that her son will sit on the throne of David that ruling throne from Jerusalem, the capital of the world, during the millennium. So Jesus will sit on that throne. He's not on his throne yet. He's on his Father's throne, awaiting for his throne to be taken or be given to him. And God says in Psalms 2, when I make your enemies your footstool, that's when he sits on his throne, the throne of David. The twelve apostles will sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes and the angels. That's in Matthew 19. In 1 Corinthians 6, the 24 elders sit on thrones. So we're going to study the 24 elders this this week in Revelation 4.4. And finally, the unbelievers will be judged at a great white throne at the end of the age, at the end of the millennium in Revelation 20, verse 12. Okay, so back in verse 3, he that sat on was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. So there are three other visions of the throne room in the Bible. You have Isaiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. Okay, and we'll look at those in a lot of detail. But those three other visions have some important details that are going to be common to chapter 4. But we're going to learn some new things in this chapter that were hidden in the Old Testament. The word rainbow here is iris. You think of iris meaning a halo. It's kind of reflective light 
when you see a rainbow in the sky, the beauty of it, the colors of the rainbow is God's promise to us, right, as a covenant to his people that he would never again destroy the world with a flood, but later on it'll be with something different. So no more with water. And that iris, just imagine, you know, you kind of wonder, where did we ever get the idea of these angels with these halos around their, around their head? Well, it comes from this. You know, that's what the word iris means, halo. So colored light. And it's, it's interesting because when you study Ezekiel 28, Satan was actually clothed in light before he fell and rebelled. It's likely that Adam and Eve were also clothed in light before they fell. And so this being clothed in colored light, everywhere you see these, the names of precious jewels in the Bible, it was always in ancient times used to describe colored light. That's how they could describe it. And it's hard to make the link because the names of the stones have changed over the years. And so a jasper today means something different than it did 6,000 years ago. But the point is the same. It's a colored, it's a way to describe colored light. So to look upon him is like a jasper and a sardine. Now this is really interesting because this is, this is so intentional, this, the verbiage here, a jasper and a sardine. When you go back to the Old Testament, remember the breastplate of the high priest? They had to wear to go into the Holy of Holies. Okay, that's where we are. We're in the Holy of Holies. There were 12 stones on the breastplate. One stone for each of the 12 tribes. Now, not to get confusing, but there's actually 13 tribes. We're going to talk about that later as we go through the book. But if you remember Joseph, when he's in Egypt, he has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And when Jacob comes down, he adopts them, which is why all through the Bible, the 12 tribes, what we generically call the 12 tribes, are listed over and over. But it's really a list of 13 and the Holy Spirit picks and chooses which ones to add in that list. So you have the 12 original, including Levi, with Joseph. But then in a lot of lists, you'll have Manasseh and Ephraim substituting someone. So just pay attention to that. But they had 12 stones for each of the original 12 tribes. The first stone on the breastplate was the Sardi stone for Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn. And it means, behold a son. The 12th stone was the Jasper. Remember, Benjamin was Joseph's youngest brother, and Benjamin was the last born. It means son of my right hand. And so literally, you're bookending the breastplate with behold a son, the son of my right hand, which always speaks of Jesus. And so the one sitting on the throne looks like behold a son, the son of my right hand. So it's literally speaking of Jesus in the throne room of the universe. And so Revelation, the next verse, verse 4, and round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. So the word seats here is thronos, we mentioned that a minute ago, 39, 39 times in the book of Revelation. So the seats, literally it should have been translated thrones. So these 24 elders are sitting on thrones, 24 thrones around the throne room of God. And it's the same word that's translated throne at the beginning of the verse. And so literally these are seats assigned to kings and judges, people of high esteem. Here we have the first mention of the 24 elders. And so we're going to do a, a few slides in a minute on who were they, 
Who are they? Who are they not? And who could they be? You know, just by deduction. So like I mentioned, you have these previous visions of the throne room, Isaiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. And they all have angels and cherubim and seraphim and the rainbow and the colored light and all these things are common in these visions. There's even thrones in Daniel 7. Daniel 7, the thrones are cast down. But only here in Revelation 4 do we see who sits on those thrones, the 24 elders. And the 24 elders, what we'll find when we do the study as we go through chapters 4 and 5, they represent us, the church. And it was hidden in the Old Testament, which is why Isaiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel did not reveal them to us on who they were. So David separated the priesthood into 24 courses. And there were a lot of non-Levitical priestly orders in the Bible. You know, the, the, priest, the priesthood through the 12 tribes, it started with Levi. But when you go backwards before that, you run into Melchizedek in Genesis 14. Remember, Abraham goes to fight the, the ten kings, and he fights the kings to get Lot back. And Melchizedek is a king and a priest. This is all in Genesis 14. A king and a priest from Salem. That literally means Jerusalem. That's where we get the name, Jerusalem. And he's a king and a priest, and Abraham delivers tithes to him. And Melchizedek brings bread and wine. It's the first mention of bread and wine in the Bible. And that bread and wine theme is carried all throughout. Uh, Jethro, remember Moses' father-in-law, he was a priest in Midian. So he was some type of priest in Exodus 3. Jacob in Genesis 28 actually gives tithes somewhere. The Bible doesn't necessarily clarify to whom and where, but he's giving tithes and offerings to someone in Genesis 28. This is long before Leviticus and Numbers and all of the priestly order is established. So you have... All of these priestly orders leading up to the tribe of Levi, and then after the close of that, there's another priestly order, these 24 elders. And they are kings and priests, much like Melchizedek. And Melchizedek turns out to be a model of our Messiah, of Jesus, from Psalms 110 and Hebrews 5 through 7. You know, Hebrews, they spend three chapters talking about Melchizedek alone and how he's a type of Jesus. He shows up. He has no genealogy. He has no beginning, no ending. He's a king and a priest. And all through the Old Testament from Levi on, those were to be separate. Remember, Judah was the tribe for the kings, the royal tribe. Levi was the priestly tribe. And a lot of times in the Old Testament, these kings tried to do priestly orders. And God would say, no, no, you may not do that. They're to be separate, only to be joined once again where we are today in the church. And so the 24 elders, you know, when we, when we go through this vision of the throne room, we know some things they cannot be. They can't be tribulation saints because those are separate. We'll see those in Revelation 7, verses 13 and 14. And one of the elders, that's one of us, one of the 24 elders, answered John. This is, he's speaking to John, saying unto me, what are these which are arrayed in white robes and whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so the tribulation saints we see later in Revelation. So the 24 elders aren't them. They can't be angels. Angels are separated in chapters 4 and 5. 
in Revelation 7, 11, and all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders. And so God is separating those two, right? The angels and the elders separate. And the four beasts which fell and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God. The nation Israel shows up in Revelation 7 and 12. We've got the 144,000, the two witnesses. You have 12 tribes that are all talked about later on in Revelation. So we know that the elders aren't Israel. And we're going to find in chapter 5, the elders declare that they are saved out of every tribe, nation, and tongue, and people group on earth. You know, there's only one group of people that have ever fit that, and that's the church, taken out of every nation on the earth. Also, just note, the word church does not appear in the entire book of Revelation after chapter 3. So the church is up through that, that point. It closes, and then you've got the 24 elders in heaven. And then the church never shows up again from chapter 4 on. The word church never shows up. So it's just a, it's a hint. It's a structural hint of what God's doing. So there are some specific characteristics of the 24 elders. They're taken from the seven letters to the seven churches. You have They have crowns of gold in Revelation 2.10 and 3.11. That's speaking of us. Remember, the 24 elders have crowns of gold. Well, in the seven letters and seven churches, we as the church have crowns of gold. They sit on thrones. In Revelation 3.21, there's a promise to us to sit on thrones with Jesus. They are clothed in white raiment in Revelation 3, verse 25. And they're clothed in white raiment here. Also recall the seven lampstands on earth in chapter 1 represented the church. And here in, in Revelation 4, verse 5, the next verse as we're unpacking this. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So the seven lamps are on earth in chapter 1, and they're in heaven now with Jesus in chapter 4. So the next verse, verse 6, and before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. Now this sea of glass... All through the Bible, water is used as the word of God. You know, a lot. That idiom is made a lot. Remember the brazen altar with the, the washing of the laver in the tabernacle? You had to wash to get into the tabernacle. And then we see in Ephesians that we wash with the word daily. And so now here we're in heaven and we're standing on the word of God. So that, that idiom is carried all throughout the Bible to now we're standing on the word of God before the throne room of the universe. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the word here for beast is zoon. And it's where we get our word for zoo. And it literally means living creatures. And you're going to see this in Ezekiel. It, it speaks of living creatures. It's the same it's the same entity, the same heavenly angel angelic entity that we're viewing here. In chapter 4 that Ezekiel saw, that Isaiah saw, and Ezekiel actually saw it twice. Isaiah sees the seraphim with six wings, which could be different than the cherubim, different types of angels here. So the cherubim are really very high up in the ranks of angels. Remember when Adam and Eve fell and God had to set a cherubim to guard the way to Eden, to guard the way to the tree of life? So... Why a cherubim? Well, Satan was a cherubim, so he's kind of just a like rank there on, in terms of 
power or strength or guardianship to make sure that we as man could not get to that tree of life in our fallen state. That was the whole point. Because we had to be redeemed first, then the access to the tree of life is granted once again in the new city, the new Jerusalem. Okay, the next verse, verse 7. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And so, again, when you go back and you read these three visions of the throne room, you're going to see these same four faces show up. A man, an ox, a lion, and an eagle. And so we'll break that down here a little bit, why those four faces are important. Okay, Isaiah 6.1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Remember, at this time, the Holy Spirit would come and go down to the temple when it was standing. And since the veil was torn, that Holy Spirit indwells us. We are the, the temple of God seven times in the New Testament. So this train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain, he covered his face. And with twain, he covered his feet. And with twain, he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So you have these. This is the only place in the Bible that God mentions the seraphim. They're likely different than the cherubim. But they've got six wings and they're crying, holy, holy, holy to God for the Trinity. Right? Holy, holy, holy. And you can try to imagine what they look like, but they're not, it's not a three-dimensional space. And so it'd be really hard to even grasp what does this scene even look like. But in Ezekiel chapter 1, a so out of the mist thereof came the likeness of four living creatures. So here's these four living creatures again. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man, and everyone had four faces, and everyone had four wings. And their feet were straight feet, and the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like the color of burnished brass, and they had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides. And they four had their faces and their wings. Their wings, they went every one straight forward. As for the likeness of their face, they had four they four had the face of a man and the face of a lion on the right side, and they four had the face of an ox on the left side, and they four also had the face of an eagle. When you study the, the face of the ox, it's interesting because the cherubim have these four different faces from the Bible here, and it's likely that Satan, whenever he would show up and tempt the people in ancient times, that he would reveal himself as an ox, which is why when they left Egypt... They, what did they do? They fashioned a golden ox or a, a golden calf, right? They were looking to it for its provision. It's the same thing. You know, it's funny. People say, there's no way we do that today. We don't fashion little idols and worship things. And, but you, they were looking to that for their provision, right? Cattle was a source of provision for them in the Old Testament and Egypt specifically. And what's the one gigantic golden statue furnished on Wall Street. It's a giant bull, right? It's the same thing. You look to it, we as a nation look to it for provision, just like they did back then. It's the exact same lie that Satan pulls. So these four faces, a lion, a man, an ox, and an eagle, they're the same symbols that Israel camped around in the wilderness. 
You know, in Psalms 40, verse 7, Jesus says, in the volume of the book, it's written of me. And when you do a deep dive study on going verse by verse through the Old Testament, you'll find that everything, every little detail in that, in all the Torah, in all the Old Testament, all the scriptures, always speaks of Jesus. And in Numbers chapter 2, you get a census of the children of Israel out of the wilderness as they're roaming around and we're given a breakdown of their numbers by how they camped. And when you first read through it, you have a tendency just to glance over it and keep moving because it's a bunch of numbers and it's kind of boring and it's hard to figure out why would the Lord even put this here. Well, but when you go to Psalms and you figure out, okay, in the volume of the book, it's written of me, Jesus speaking, somehow these numbers have to relate to Jesus. And the tribes were to all camp around the Levites and the tabernacle. So get the picture there. They have this portable sanctuary, the tabernacle, and they would roam around and where they, and where God told them they would, st they would stop, they would erect the tabernacle. And then the Levites camped around the tabernacle. Okay. And whatever, whatever number they were in population wise, they would be even on all sides and just divvy it up. So the thickness around the tabernacle was the same, okay? And then God instructed the other 12 tribes to break up into these four groups of three each. And so they had to camp south, west, east, and north from the tabernacle. You couldn't go southeast. You couldn't go southwest. You had to stay true, okay, to whatever the thickness was of the Levites. They would stay within that boundary and just... Get the appreciation that they were really stringent on doing this. They, they tried desperately to obey the word of God. And so here, remember I mentioned the 13 tribes. Well, Levi is in the middle. He's not in these lists because Ephraim and Manasseh had been adopted by now. So you have 12 other tribes that God is working with here. So in the breakdown from Numbers 2, when you add up the numbers, you have Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Okay, and they camped around a lion. Then you had Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin, and they camped around an ox. Then you had Reuben, Simeon, and Gad, and they camped around a man. And then you had Dan, Asher, and Naphtali, who camped around an eagle. So you have the same four faces of the cherubim for the 12 tribes of Israel that they would rally around this symbol. Okay, when they stopped in the wilderness, they would camp. And you can look at the numbers here. When you add up Numbers chapter 2... The camp of Judah and his two others would add up to 186,400. Ephraim with the ox, 108,100. Reuben with the man, 151,450. And Dan and the two others with the eagle, 157,600. And so when you lay them out proportionally, how they would camp around the tabernacle, when you just look at those numbers in Numbers chapter 2, it lays out a cross. In the wilderness wanderings. And so you have literally an aerial view of the camp of Israel in Numbers chapter 2 as a cross. Thousands of years before crucifixion is even invented by man. And so you've got the cross laid out here. And you can see in the upper right hand corner kind of an aerial view of it. But those are the four faces they would camp around. The same four faces that are around the throne room of God as the cherubim. And it's all lays out and speaks of Jesus somehow from the from the very beginning, all these numbers, all the genealogies, everything. It's always speaking 
of Jesus. So literally with the throne room and these four faces is embedded a code all the way back to Numbers chapter 2 laying out the cross. Okay, the living creatures. So if the four faces of the cherubim align with the camp of Israel and the camp of Israel lays out a cross, then the four faces must also align with the four books where the cross was the, the pivotal moment of those books, right? The Gospels, the four Gospels, that the entire event of the crucifixion, the pivotal moment in all of history is laid out in detail from different vantage points in those four Gospels. And so you have Matthew, where Jesus is presented as the line of the tribe of Judah. And Matthew was a Jew, and you have Jesus. It's all about, when you read the Gospel of Matthew, it's very Jewish. He's the line of the tribe of Judah. Matthew's genealogy starts with the first Jew in Abraham, and he goes through the legal line through Joseph to Jesus. And his book is actually written to the Jews. And the book ends with a promise that every Jew in the Old Testament was looking for, which was the resurrection. Right? It's a very Jewish topic. And so his gospel is all about Jesus as the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. In Mark, what did they use cattle or calves and ox and, and things like that for in ancient times? It's the same thing we do today. They're beasts of burden. Right? They are servants, they are servants to us, to man. And in Mark, you have Jesus presented as the suffering servant. Everything through the Gospel of Mark, it, it's all about Jesus serving others. The whole thing is about servanthood. And there's no genealogy in Mark um, because the servant really has no pedigree, right? A servant just shows up and does his job. He doesn't, you don't really care about where he comes from. And Mark's book is to the Gentile Romans. And Mark ends with a servant ascending, right? A servant, the ascension of Jesus is how Mark ends his gospel. And you have the ascension at the very end. Luke presents Jesus as a man. He's a Gentile doctor. He focuses on the humanity of Jesus Christ. And Luke's genealogy starts with the bloodline of Jesus at Adam, the first man. Okay, so are you seeing the differences here? And it's identical to the genealogy in Matthew all the way up to David. But at David, they go different paths where Matthew goes through Solomon and Luke goes through Nathan, who's the second surviving son of Bathsheba. Not Nathan the prophet, but a different Nathan. And then Luke carries it through the bloodline to Mary. So Luke's book is to the Gentile Greeks. And Luke ends with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So it's a, it's a book kind of to the church, the Gentiles. It's the promise to us of the Holy Spirit, which sets up his sequel he writes, which is the book of Acts, which is the Acts of the Spirit. So after the Holy Spirit's given, what happens then? So the end of his book sets up the sequel. John presents Jesus as who he was and still is as the Son of God, the preexistent one, right? The one that flies above everything else. Right? Think of it as an eagle in, so, in sorts. The one who ascends, who's always been ascending, who sits on the heights of heaven. And the book of John opens with a genealogy of the pre-existing one. And his book is written to the church, which is why so many of us today really relate with John. If you're ever talking to a new believer on where, where should I begin in reading the Bible, the book of John's a great spot. Because it's, 
it's shallow enough for a new believer to walk through, but it's deep enough that somebody who's been studying the Bible for their entire life can still find new things out of it. And John's book is structured around these seven I am statements of Jesus. You know, these seven I am discourses. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am. And even in the Gospel of John, all of those I am statements link to something in the tabernacle from the wilderness. So there is the light of the world, the bread, the showbread. So he, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. There was one door into the tabernacle. Jesus said, I am the door. So even in the structure of that, it links back to those events in Numbers. So John's book, uh, it, it also ends with the promise of his return, which is interesting because that sets up his sequel, the book of Revelation. And so it, there's structure to all of this, and there's deliberate design to all of this on how Jesus has organized the Gospels around the four faces of the cherubim, around the camp of, of Israel from the wilderness wanderings, all the way back in Numbers. So here's a little table. You've got Jesus presented as the Messiah, the servant, the son of man, the son of God, the genealogy through Abraham, then Luke goes through Adam. John is, has that genealogy, but it's the pre-existing one. In the beginning was God. God was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The focus of Jesus, Matthew, is all about what he said. Mark about what he did. Luke about how he felt. And John, who he was. It's written to the Jews, the Romans, the Greeks, and the church. Even the first miracle in the Gospels relates to that theme of the Gospel. Okay, in Matthew, the first miracle is a leper is healed. That's a very Jewish thing. In Mark, a demon is exercised. In Mark and Luke. And in John, water to wine. Which is interesting because, remember, Jesus stopped at the Passover. He stopped. He didn't drink that final cup of wine at the Passover. Because he's going to do that with us as a church at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So even the first miracle here in John is predictive of that to come. It ends with his resurrection, the ascension, Luke, the promise of the Spirit, and John, the promise of his return. And Luke and John set up their sequels. And then the campsite, so Matthew was the lion from Judah, so he was east. And when you look at ancient maps, it's interesting how east is always up on the map, which is really fascinating. You know, today we have north traditionally up, but east was always up on the maps in ancient times. Uh, the Gospel of Mark, west, the Ephraim and the ox, Luke, the south, Reuben and the man, and John, north, and Dan and the eagle. So you have the same four faces of the cherubim that we're seeing in the throne room of the universe embedded in the camp of Israel with a cross linking to the four Gospels that all speak highly of the cross and Jesus. Okay, and the, and the chapter closes in these final four verses here, 8 through 11. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy. Again, that's a link to the Trinity. God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor... And thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders, that's us, fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever. And remember we talked all through the seven letters to the seven churches. We talked a lot about crowns 
and rewards for faithful service and being diligent in your walk with the Lord, well, here's what you get to do with them. Okay? The four twenty elders fell down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And so we get to throw all these crowns, if you've been faithful in your life, and at at that judgment seat, when you get a reward for faithful service, you in the throne room of the universe get to cast them at the feet of Jesus and say, oh, it's all glory to you, God. You know, and you don't really, it's kind of awkward when you show up to a party and you don't have a gift. You know, have you ever done that? I, I did that a couple times as a kid where I forgot to bring a birthday gift. You go to a party and it's, it's awkward. It feels very awkward. Well, don't feel awkward here. So work hard and serve the Lord and be faithful in your service so you have something to present to him. That's what it's all about. It's all about presenting it to him. And notice that in his presence, it's almost like you have no choice but to praise and worship him. And if you've ever had an experience where Jesus walks in the room and talks with you, it is so true. You have no choice but when you are in his presence, to be on your knees, hands lifted up, worshiping the one that created you. And when you hear some interesting testimonies of people that have been saved out of the New Age or out of these different movements, one of them I heard a while back, this guy was saved out of the New Age. And when he finally came to grips, and in the moment he was getting saved, when he accepted the Lord, he was standing outside and Jesus walked into that place with him. And he said he'll never forget it because it was like nature stood still. The birds stopped singing. The, anything that was going on, the wind stopped. It just was silent. Because you really, you have no choice but to worship him. And to, and to give it all back to him. At the very end of this chapter here, just look. God delights in you. Okay, for you has, have created all things. And for your pleasure, they, were, they are and were created. You know, you were created. All of earth is asking, why is man here? Why were we created? What, who put us here and why? Well, the answer is right here at the end of chapter 4 in the throne room. You are created to serve the Lord. That's what you're created to do. He wants fellowship with you. And I'm, I'm telling you, if you haven't found that in your life and you're watching online... If you're here in New City Church and in person with us, that is your purpose, is to serve and worship him. That's what it's all about. And then after you start doing that, you can find what he wants you to do. So if you do not know Jesus and want to make sure you have a seat or a throne in the throne room of the universe, it's really simple. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart, that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's it. There's nothing you can add to it. There's nothing you can take away from it. He paid it all, and we're going to see the authority he paid for next week in chapter 5 as he comes forward to take that scroll that's, that that intro video speaks about. We're going to unpack that next week in chapter 5, but that authority he paid for, and he alone, which is why all you have to do is to accept it. Confess with your mouth, that Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart and God hath raised him from the dead and you shall 
be saved. So you can make sure your seat's reserved. If you're watching this online all over the world, you can have a seat with the 24 elders before it's too late. And he wants to welcome you to your forever place. And the bride of Christ is going home soon. And those seats are going to be cast down, just like in Daniel 7. And we're going to finally get to sit in the presence of our king now and forever from that moment on. In Isaiah 118, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The reasoning together from Amos, how can two walk together, but they are in agreement. That's the reason here in Isaiah 118. Reason together, says the Lord. So to reason with him, you accept him, and then you obey his word, and then you're in agreement with him, with the creator of the universe. You are in an agreement that you can't get out of, and then your goal is to walk with him. So if you're watching online and you need salvation, if you need prayer, reach out to us. There's our email address. There's a chat function in a lot of the streaming services. If you need to ask a question, please do. We're here for you. So with that, I'm going to close us in prayer. Thank you, guys. Father, I just thank you so much for this time together. God, I thank you for the vision of the throne room of the universe. I thank you for embedded in that very throne room is the cross that you paid everything for us to have a seat next to you in the throne room. Lord, you paid it all. Lord, there's nothing that we can do except for humbly accept it. And we thank you for the fellowship we have in you and through you and by your word. And we just pray a special blessing upon those watching online. We pray that, God, if any of them need salvation, if any of them need prayer, that, Lord, you would pave a way to them. Lord, your will is that none should perish, but all should come to everlasting life. And in 1 John 5, anything we pray in your will, you will act and hear us from heaven. And so, Jesus, we are praying on behalf of those people who need salvation, that you would come forward and that you would move mountains and be the ultimate warrior fighting for their soul and their spirit, and that, God, you would grab a hold of them never to be lost again. Thank you for unpacking the book of Revelation for us. Lord, it is such a rich book for us to go through today. And, Lord, we are just claiming the blessing that you promised in chapter 1 as we continue this study. Be with us in the week ahead, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.